Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to another glorious Tuesday. It is absolutely beautiful outside where I live. It's probably about in the 70s here in Maryland, and I love it. I know it's October, and I know I said a couple weeks ago that I wish it would just get colder, but I really like this weather. What about you? Let me know. On tonight's episode, we are going to be talking about British work and poorhouses. But before we get started, let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. Nothing too interesting has happened since I've done an update with you guys. I went to a Greta Van Fleet concert with my husband and a few of our friends. We drove about three hours to go see them, and the show was absolutely wonderful. The person who normally watches our daughter during the day kept her until we were able to pick her up around like 1.30 in the morning, I think. So that was really fun. They had a great time. They got to spend a lot of time together, which they absolutely loved. I mentioned in the past that I've been experiencing some health issues and I've seen a neurologist a couple of times. And this past week, I went back to her to get some more of the test results. Nothing too interesting really to report or like anything significant really. Um, Some of my blood work did come back where she wants me to see a rheumatologist. So hopefully the rheumatologist that I actually spoke with today might be able to get me in a lot sooner than the end of November and we can kind of go forward with that. She did give me a contact information for another neurologist to not really get a second opinion but to kind of rule out a few things because this specific neurologist specializes in like MS and those kind of things. And that was kind of my main concern of could this be MS? My neurologist does not think it is. I kind of think it is, but of course I'm just, you know, the patient and I'm just researching a lot of things. And I know a few people who have MS and a lot of the symptoms that I've been experiencing are kind of the same. So I believe the First available appointment they had for that doctor was, again, the end of November. So I'm just going to kind of stick it out and hopefully they call me with something sooner. We'll see. 
Then really the only other thing that happened was we did a surprise birthday party for one of our other friends who just turned 30. He absolutely hates any attention on himself, so of course we had to do it. And he also has been complaining the last couple of years of turning 30 and how he just didn't want to do it. So we had to make a huge deal about it, and it was fantastic, and he loved it but also hated it at the same time because all attention was on him. And now you and I are here together and we, like I said, are going to be talking about British work and poorhouses. So let's go ahead and get into it. In 1388, a piece of English legislation was put in place to restrict the movements of laborers and beggars. It was called the Statute of Cambridge, 1388. This would prohibit any laborer from leaving the city or borough where they lived without a testimonial that showed the cause of their departure. Anyone that was found without such papers would be placed in stocks until someone could vouch for them. This was in an attempt to address the labor shortages that was caused by the Black Death. According to History.com, the Black Death was a devastating global epidemic a bubonic plague that struck Europe and Asia in the mid-1300s. Over the course of five years, the Black Death killed more than 20 million people, almost one-third of the continent's population at the time. Many feared that if they left their parishes for higher-paid work elsewhere, then wages would be raised. The Poor Relief Act of 1576 was established that if the able-bodied poor needed support, they had to work for it. The Act for the Relief of the Poor of 1601 made parishes responsible for the care of those who were either unable to work or unwilling to work. The Act classified the poor into one of three groups. Those who couldn't work were to be cared for in a poorhouse or private charitable houses. Those were mainly people who were either lame, impotent, old, or blind. The second group was the able-bodied poor who were sent to workhouses and materials were provided to them so that they could work. And the third group were the idle poor or the vagrants that were sent to a house of correction or prisons. The Elizabethan Poor Law was in place during a time when the population was small enough that everyone knew everyone else. This meant that overseers of the poor knew who their paupers were and could differentiate between the deserving and the undeserving. The 1601 Act was supposed to deal with poor people who found themselves temporarily out of work and assumed they would accept either indoor or outdoor relief. It was meant to deal with beggars who were considered a threat to civil order. Many people criticized the 1601 Act because many poor people migrated towards the more generous parishes. Since there were no standards, each parish was able to interpret the law as they saw fit. They were each responsible for their own poor population. This began arguments over who was responsible for this person or that person. 
This led to the passing of the Settlement Act of 1662, which allowed relief onto established residents of a parish through birth, marriage, or apprenticeship. They had to prove their settlement in that area in order to receive support from that specific parish. Some parishes who wanted to keep their costs low began floating people from parish to parish. The Settlement Act of 1662 allowed strangers to be removed after 40 days if they were not working. When the Settlement Laws of 1697 were refined, this meant that people could be banned from entering a parish unless they could prove a settlement certificate. Another criticism was the cost. Building several types of workhouses was very expensive. The Act stated that workhouses, poorhouses, and houses of correction should be built for different types of people, but it was not cost-effective to build different buildings. This led to many parishes combining their institutions. When the Act was first implemented, there wasn't a large population, so there was more control. When the Industrial Revolution hit, so did a massive population increase. This meant that unemployment was increasing and poor relief costs couldn't be met. Between the French Revolutionary Wars, Napoleonic Wars, and the Battle of Waterloo, there were periods of trade blockades. This meant that Britain was prevented from getting access to large imports of grains. After the war, many farmers went bankrupt because the poor rate was high and because they had to pay their wartime taxes. Soldiers returning from war also put pressure on the poor law system. The 1832 Royal Commission into the Operation of the Poor Laws put out a report stating that changes needed to be made. They stated that the old system was badly run and very expensive. Their report recommended these changes. Relief should only be given in the workhouses, and that the condition in the workhouses should be so bad that it might deter people from coming, and only truly indigent people would accept it. In an article on Wikipedia.com for Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, it states this, Into such a house none will enter voluntarily. Work, confinement, and discipline should deter them, and nothing but extreme necessity will induce any to accept the comfort which must be obtained by the surrender of their free agency and the sacrifice of their accustomed habits and gratifications. Another recommendation was that different classes of poor should be segregated, that each parish should pull together in unions with each of the poorhouses dedicated to a single class and serving the whole of the union. To ensure proper regulation of each workhouse, the men and women should be separated. Another recommendation was that the new system would be undermined if unions treated their poor differently. A central board should have powers to specify standards and enforce those standards. Parliament was not allowed to handle this because of the legislative workload that this would cause them. They also stated that mothers who had illegitimate children should receive less support. Identifying the father and seeking child support was also no longer a thing. 
They thought that penalizing the fathers would only pressure them to marry the mother and that generous payment would show that the mother was not worthy of marrying. This was to also encourage other women to practice sexual abstinence, therefore be eligible to obtain a legitimate husband. So what was the Poor Law Commission? The Poor Law Commission was a body established to administer poor relief after the passing of the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. The commission was made up of three commissioners who became known as the Bashaws of Somerset House, their secretary, and nine clerks or assistant commissioners. The Poor Law Commission was completely separate from Parliament, as we learned just a bit ago. With no members of the commission sitting in Parliament, it was hard to defend themselves against criticism. The Poor Law Commissioners were Sir Thomas Franklin Lewis, who served between August of 1834 and January of 1839, John George Shaw Lefevre, who served between August 1834 and November of 1841, Sir George Nichols, who served between August 1834 and December of 1847, Sir George Cornwall Lewis, who served between January 1839 and August of 1847. Sir Edmund Walker Head, who served between November 1841 and December of 1847. And Edward Turner Boyd Twistleian, who served between November 1845 and July of 1847. The Commission had the power to issue directives, but because they were not regulated by Parliament, there was no way of forcing parishes to do what they wanted. The Poor Law Commission lasted until 1847 when it was replaced by a Poor Law Board. The new body was headed by a president. Those who were president between 1847 and 1871 are as follows. Charles Bueller, 1847 to 1849, Matthew Talbot Baines, 1849 to 1852, Sir John Trollpey, 1852, Matthew Talbot Baines, 1852 to 1855, Edward Plydell Bolveri, 1858 to 1859, Charles Gordon Lennox, 1859, Charles Pelham Villers, 1859 to 1866, Gathorn Hardy, 1866 to 1867, William Courtney, 1867 to 1868, George they took over the public health and local government responsibilities and all the functions of the Poor Law Board. Their powers and duties consisted of registration of births, deaths, and marriages, public health, local government, drainage and sanitary matters, baths and wash houses, 
public improvements, towns improvements, artisans and laborers' dwellings, returns of local taxation, prevention of disease, vaccinations, and all powers and duties imposed on the Poor Law Board relating to the relief of the poor. In 1872, they also received responsibility of Turnpike and Highway Acts. Let's back up just a little bit and talk about the conditions in the workhouses in the 1800s. When the Poor Law Commission was established, they were extremely critical of the existing workhouses and wanted them to be replaced. Many new workhouses were constructed with the central buildings surrounded by work and exercise yards enclosed behind brick walls. The Poor Law Commission requested that all new workhouses be built for four groups to be housed separately. These groups were the aged and impotent, children, able-bodied men, and able-bodied women. With the design in the shape of a plus sign, it made it easier to have four separate work and exercise yards for each group. The reason for the separation was to serve three purposes. Number one, give treatment to those who needed it most. Number two, deter others from this life. And three, as a barrier against illnesses, physical and mental. Between 1840 and 1870, there were roughly 150 workhouses with separate blocks designed for specific functions built. Each poor law union had one or two officers whose job it was to visit people applying for assistance and assess what relief they should be given. Anyone that was determined to have an immediate need was given a note to admit them directly to a workhouse. Once they arrived, they were assessed and sent to the appropriate ward for their category. These categories were boys under 14, able-bodied men between 14 and 60, men over 60, girls under 14, able-bodied women between 14 and 60, and women over 60. This meant that anyone coming with their families were separated, even from their children, except those who were under the age of two who were allowed to stay with their mothers. By entering a workhouse, it meant that a person was forfeiting the responsibility for their families. Once you entered, any clothes or possessions you had with you were taken away and stored. These were given back to you once you were discharged. After you were assessed and sent to the correct ward, you were given a bath and issued a uniform. Men were given a striped cotton shirt, jacket, pants, shoes, and a cloth cap. Women were given a blue and white striped dress, shoes, and a smock. There were many workhouses that would establish categories of inmates by the clothes that they were given. An example of this was at one workhouse where if you were a prostitute, you were given a yellow dress. And if you were pregnant and single, you were given a red dress. Many workhouses also had separate wards for those who were diagnosed with skin diseases 
such as scabies. Destitute people who were suffering from mental illnesses were supposed to be protected by the Lunacy Act of 1853 and sent to an asylum, but many times they were forced to go to workhouses. It's noted in a documentary titled Secrets from the Workhouse that about 10% of people who were admitted after 1834 died within the system. Many of the inmates were allocated tasks in the workhouse such as caring for the sick or teaching beyond their capabilities. It was thought that the work by the inmates would produce enough profit to allow them to be self-supported, but it never matched the running cost. More often than not, inmates were also employed to break stones, remove the hemp from telegraph wires, and pick oakium. The schedule that they were given in the workhouses was waking up between 5 and 6 a.m., breakfast was between 6.30 and 7, work was between 7 and 12, dinner or lunch as we call it in the United States was between 12 and 1, work picked back up between 1 and 6, and supper between 7 and 8, and then bedtime at 10. When the Poor Law Commission was replaced by the Poor Law Board, the conditions were further regulated by a list of rules. This included guidance on issues such as diet, staff duties, dress, education, discipline, and redress of grievances. As often as possible, elderly inmates were expected to do the same work as the younger inmates. This was until 1882 when Lady Bravbazin set up a project to provide alternative occupations for the non-able-bodied inmates. This included knitting, embroidery, and lace-making. When it was discovered that they could sell the goods that they were making, the scheme spread across the country and more than 100 workhouses implemented this for their elderly inmates. The diet at the workhouses that the inmates had was considered nutritionally adequate and prepared with great care. Trained staff were hired to serve and weigh portions. The various meals consisted of bread and gruel for breakfast, cooked meats, pickled pork or bacon with vegetables, potatoes, yeast dumplings, soup or rice pudding for dinner, and supper was typically bread cheese, broth, and potatoes. If the workhouse was large, there were separate dining rooms for males and females. They would also stagger the meal times so that there was no contact between sexes. All of the workhouse children were given an education, but not by qualified teachers. The majority of the teachers were paid poorly and were forced to teach large classes of children who were not interested in learning. There was a large revolving door of teachers every single month. Some of the children were taken out of the classrooms and put in training rooms to learn valuable skills. Most boys were sent to the workshops, and the girls were tasked with learning how to make gloves. It is said that children who were apprentices were not subject to the inspection by justices which lowered the chance for punishment for neglect. 
supporting a child apprentice was also extremely cheap. Way cheaper than an adult apprentice. Workhouses often read prayers to the inmates before breakfast and after supper every day. The poor law union was required to hire a chaplain to look after any spiritual needs. Many of the early workhouses did not have a dedicated room for the chapel, so the services that were held were in the dining room. Because there was no law within the poor law that forbade forcing an inmate to attend a church service, any inmate was allowed to leave on Sundays to attend services elsewhere as long as they could provide a signed attendance certificate from the officiating minister. Around this time, Catholic priests were not welcomed at the workhouses. Many legislations were put in place in the 17th century to limit the civil rights of Catholics. This was until nearly all the restrictions on them were removed by the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829. According to Princeton.edu, the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829 permitted members of the Catholic Church to sit in Parliament. Those in the middle class could also have new careers in the higher civil service and the judiciary system. We are going to end part one of the British work and poorhouses right there. In two weeks, we are going to talk about the modern day workhouses, one woman's account of living in a workhouse, and much more. I realized last week during the mini-episode that I forgot about True Crime News Corner, as last week was the first episode of October. So, let's get into it. Here is... True Crime News Corner. Eliza Fletcher, a teacher from Memphis, Tennessee, was abducted while running near the University of Memphis campus. Her body was found near a vacant house on September 5th, nearly five miles from where she was last seen. Her cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head and blunt force trauma. According to reports, there was no evidence of sexual assault. Two days before her body was found, police arrested Cleotha Henderson and charged him with first-degree murder and aggravated kidnapping. A mass stabbing occurred on September 4th in Saskatchewan, Canada, where 12 people died and 18 people were injured. Police were able to identify two suspects, Damien and Miles Sanderson. On September 5th, Damien was found dead with multiple wounds, and on September 7th, Miles was run off the road by police. He surrendered and was arrested. He died the same day from a drug overdose. The police stated that there was evidence that Miles was the last one responsible for the stabbing deaths, including that of his brother. On September 8th, federal and state law enforcement officials in Georgia were able to use genealogy DNA to identify a murder victim and her killer in a 1988 homicide that went unsolved for decades. Stacy Lynn Chahorsky's unidentified body had been found on a Georgia highway in 1988. Authorities were able to determine that she was killed by a man named Henry Frederick Wise. In 1999, 
Henry burned to death in a car accident at South Carolina's Myrtle Beach Speedway. In an article on NPR.com, Special Agent Carrie Farley is quoted saying this, Let this serve as a warning to every murderer, rapist, and violent offender out there. The FBI and our partners will not give up. It may take years or even decades, but we are determined and we will continually seek justice for victims and their families. R. Kelly was convicted on September 14th of child sex crimes as a jury found that he had produced three videos of him sexually abusing his 14-year-old goddaughter. He is already serving a 30-year prison sentence after a jury in Brooklyn convicted him of racketeering and sex trafficking charges. The prosecutors in this case have asked that his sentence be added on top of the Brooklyn sentence. Catherine Levy of Massachusetts was arrested on September 15th by FBI agents. She was charged with making a bomb hoax against Boston Children's Hospital. She faces one count of making a false telephonic bomb threat. James Norma, the former reality star of the show Welcome to Sweetie Pies, was found guilty on September 16th of arranging the murder of his nephew in 2016. The jury deliberated for 17 hours and found him guilty of conspiracy to commit murder for hire and conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud. This was all associated with the fatal shooting of his nephew, Andre Montgomery Jr. He is scheduled to be sentenced on December 15th. A judge vacated the murder conviction of a non-Saeed on September 19th. He was immediately released from prison after spending 23 years there. Adnan maintained his innocence since the day he was arrested for his ex-girlfriend's murder in 1999. He was convicted of that murder in 2000 and sentenced to life behind bars. Sherry Papini a California mother who faked her own kidnapping in 2016 was sentenced to one and a half years in prison on September 19th. She pleaded guilty in April to mail fraud and making false statements. She was also ordered to pay nearly $300,000 in restitution. She's quoted in an article on CNN.com saying this, I am so sorry to the many people who have suffered because of me the people who sacrificed for the broken woman I was, the people who gave willingly to help me in a time that I was so desperately needed. Thank you all. And finally, actor Ryan Grantham, best known for his role in Riverdale, was sentenced to life in prison on September 23rd after pleading guilty to the 2020 murder of his mother. Justice Kathleen Kerr, stated that he must serve 14 years behind bars before becoming eligible for parole. And that concludes tonight's episode. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Happy Hour Gets Weird podcast. Have a wonderful evening. Hi, I'm Cassie. I'm Tiffany. And we're the hosts of Happy Hour Gets Weird. On our podcast, we talk all things weird. Like UFOs. 
Bigfoot, astrology, ghosts, and even true crime. And every episode, we create a fabulous new cocktail. So fabulous. If you're looking for a little weirdness, please search Happy Hour Gets Weird on your favorite podcast platform. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.